This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. Hey, everyone. Um, the tables are turned a little bit for this episode. Um, my name is Claude Acho, and you know my voice because uh, I'm one of the co-hosts for season two of The Scandal of Reading. But this is a real treat because I get to sit in the interviewer's chair and talk to Jessica Hooten Wilson about her new book, Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice, which comes out on the 28th of March. Uh, so if you're hearing this, you probably got a few days to pre-order. If you haven't already, go ahead and do that. This is a tremendous book. Uh, I was able to get it early uh, and and endorse it. I think this is going to be uh, in the top 10 of a lot of lists for 2023. So I want to encourage folks to go ahead and get that book. Uh, it will enrich your life in a lot of ways. And I'm excited about this conversation. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thank you, by the way, for endorsing it. I mean, I think I, I thanked you before, but I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, that that I mean, it was my my, my delight. I love uh, I, I love this sort of renaissance of, of of books over the last few years that you've been a part of that are helping uh, helping the church, helping Christians and believers to to read uh, not just read more, but read better. Um, and so it's just a real honor to be to to have a hand in that um, and endorse work like this, which I, I feel like is also the type of book that will have a long life. Um, one of those evergreen books that because of what you're discussing, it's so, so fundamental and the wisdom in it is, is not just for a moment. So it's really neat for, for me to, you know, know that my name is also attached to that book in a way too. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. Well, I like that phrase evergreen book. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, uh, I I heard that from someone a couple weeks ago, and so I said, oh, "Yoink!" Hey. I will I will also start to start to use this. So mm-hmm. it's already making me look smarter than I am. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> um, I'd love to, I'd love to start with just uh, some of you know the question that you always get asked, like, "Why did you write this book, and what do you hope that it will do?" Particularly because you know your previous book, "The Scandal of Ho- Holiness: uh, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints." is also on the track of kind of reading but but these are these are distinct projects in a in a in an important way but they're also related so can you talk a little bit about um wh- why you wrote this book and and how it connects to some of the work that you've done before yeah so this book really grew out of my teaching so i've been teaching literature and theology really great books you know from augustine to tony morrison for probably the last 15 17 years and Every time that I would teach, I realized I had to teach the students first how to read before we could get into Augustine or before we could actually get into C.S. Lewis or whatever it is we were studying at the time. I had to go through the process of this is what reading looks like and let's practice how to do it. And I didn't realize how much had been trained in me for how to read from both my PhD in theology and literature, which was kind of a joint program. So I was learning from these two disciplines. And what I realized that was unique that God had kind of authored 
in my life was having this program at the time that I did. I was sitting in theology classes, learning about this tradition of hermeneutics, about how to read the scripture. And I was sitting in literature classes and I was learning literary theory and criticism and how to read literature well. And, you know, neither the two shall meet. (laughs) And what happened was I realized my knowledge from the theology class was actually helping me read literature better than some of my peers were reading it, and vice versa, that my literary criticism studies were helping me read the Bible better than some of my theology peers. And as I went forward and started teaching my classes on how to read, I could draw from the wealth of both traditions in a way that was helping my students read better and better, whether it was the literature or the Bible. And so when I was writing The Scandal of Holiness and I was finding all these things about God's holiness as reflected in the literature, people kept asking me, like, how do you do that? I read the same book you did, and I didn't see what you saw. Mm. So this became this how-to for what I'd already done in my classes over the years and trying to pass forward what my teachers, of course, had given me. Mm. So this is this is really the the guide to the the how, you know, if <laughs> if if the pre, you know, if scandal of holiness is sort of like maybe the what and a why or what to aspire to. This wow. is kind of like behind the curtain. This is this is how you can do this. Right, right. And and that's why, I mean, I hope that it is never a green book. I mean, that's why I think this book would last because I'm not really dictating your reading list in the way that I'm hoping the Scandal of Holiness was, yes, I was giving you a reading list like you were with reading black books. Here are some of the books that I really saw this in and now I'll go forth and find it in others. But this is the book that says, okay, if you're going to go forth and find holiness in other books, what does that look like and how do you do it? And that's a, that's a, I mean, I think this, the book is, um, is really ambitious in that sense, right? That like, that's a hard, a hard sort of project to tackle. That's a big thing to guide people into was like how to read in a, in a spiritual way, right? How to read in, 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 in for the love of God. So, you know, what, how did you, how did you even think about approaching that? Did you start from, you know, obviously this emerged from your teaching. So are you, are you thinking from the, the lens of these are all of the sort of, uh, ways of reading that are, that are not for the love of God? Like these are the mistakes, these are the pitfalls. And I know I need to address these. How, how do you even begin to, to tackle, tackle something like this? And, and by extension, you know, what's sort of the first thing that people need to shift into in order to read for the love of God? So I was blessed, I think, in my reading habits growing up that I, I'm i going to copy Flannery O'Connor here. She said that her education was not much of a burden for her because of her lack of total retention. Um, nice. <laughs> mine was something similar when it comes to my high school teaching. I did not let English teachers destroy my love of literature. And all the different ways they tried to get me to move away from my personal, almost childhood habits of reading, in which if I was drawn to a book, I read it over and over again. I would go to Barnes and Noble and I would pick out what I wanted and I would fall in love with it. Or if I didn't like it, I would put it down. So some of the things that I just did by habit, the way you do when you're a kid, I never let my English teachers affect me negatively. Mm. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had a couple that were really good and affected me positively. But the ones who tried to get me to dissect the book in front of me, to turn it into a quiz where I got things right or wrong, where there were certain ways of reading uh, that were really modern and postmodern in an unhealthy way. And what I, what I mean by that is just our almost scientific method approach to literature mm. that I think becomes unhealthy. I just didn't allow those things to sink in. But when I started teaching college, I found that most of my students had bought into that. 
that they came with all these presuppositions that they had to figure out what I was thinking about the book in order to pass the class. So their entire reading project was not about loving the book, not about loving God, not about knowing the world. Everything was passing a class. Mm. I did not get into teaching literature so that students could pass a class or get credit. And so I had to debunk that if I was going to enjoy the class, if they were going to enjoy the class, if we were not going to kill the souls of all the books I was bringing in front of them. I had to find a way to get them to really love these things. And, and so I had to remind them of the habits that I had, but also some of the, the ways that I had learned from my, my professors who really loved literature and loved, loved theology and what it brought to the literary endeavor. Where did those habits come from for you? Yeah. Because you, you're, um, you're describing something that a lot of people just don't have intuitively, like the idea that read how you want, read at a read, uh, you know, read on a whim. Um, uh-huh. Alan Jacobs like teaches that, talks about yeah. that, or and also even the like, if I don't like a book, I'm just going to stop reading it. You know, like these are things that I think people have um, this sort of guilt um, mm-hmm. that that's sort of embedded in how we're to approach books. So like, where did? But you you seem to have had habits um, that inclined you in this direction. Like, where where did those come from? I, well, I actually think that most people have them. I, I okay. would. Okay. I would assert that that's what is driven out of us. So when when Jesus Christ says, okay. "Unless you become like a little child again," mm. what he's talking about is that most of the world is going, if we're going to be religious, is going to carve us into the life of a Pharisee, and that can even happen with our reading life. That we become those who think of reading according to laws and regulations and right and wrong ways of doing things, and we we destroy the soul of reading by living according to certain laws of reading that are actually pharisaical. They're not found in how we were created to be, and they're not going to be flourishing ways of being when it comes to the mm-hmm. life of the reader. And so I just didn't, and, and my husband my husband would say, it's because I just have a pr- profound disrespect for authority um, that I had to really <laughs> work through. But I, I have never thought, I've always thought authority rested on teaching what was true and good and beautiful. And so when I have found people who have done that, I have listened to them and I have humbled myself beneath them. And when I have heard people preach things that are not true and they're not good and they're not beautiful, I I don't respond to them. And I've always been that way with teachers. So when my teachers used to tell me that I had to finish this book or I had to read this thing, I just often wouldn't. Mm. Uh, now I'm not... <laughs> It sounds like such a bad teacher thing to say. Um, I'm not advocating that we are so individualistic that we we take ourselves as the own gauge of what is right and true. I'm just saying as a young person, that prevented me from bad teachers mm. and helped me to follow the good teachers. Hmm. And as a teacher, I have tried to be someone who put the good things in front of my students and who didn't force them to read things that that weren't good and that weren't worthwhile. And, um, and that meant that if the more that I could buy in their trust for what I was putting in front of them, I would encourage them to read it, even if it was difficult for them or challenging, or their preference might have pushed back against it because it wasn't something they liked. Um, but I think you have to actually build that relationship so that those habits have some sort of foundation. And, and if not, you're just inspiring certain kinds of behavior without the right heart behind it. And the life of the reader isn't going to change. Mm. 
Speaking of the life of the reader, um, I, I want to, in a second, kind of go a little deeper into one of the chapters um, that I think is really, really, uh, really rich. But before we do that, speaking again of the life of the reader, you open uh, the book in a way with a quiz, um, uh, a, a reading quiz. Can you give people a little bit of a um, overview on on what that quiz is gesturing toward and, and why you decided to open the book in that way? <laughs> so I kept having a writer's block with this particular book because I had, I would write pages and pages of it and then couldn't find what order to put it in, how to approach it. Because again, maybe, again, maybe it's my pushback against authority. You know, if you, um, if you come in too didactic and strong, how are you any different than those who are like, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. And so here I am trying to write this book that I want it to be an invitation to something better and truer and higher. I don't want to just sound like I have all the answers or I do all these mm. things correctly and just do what I say. And as I was thinking through this, I started imagining some of the readers and writers who have inspired me to do that. And one of the ones that first came to mind was Walker Percy. And when he wrote Lost in the Cosmos, of course, he's trying to preach at his audience. He's trying to say like, you cannot go to self-help books to help yourself, right? I mean, that's the ultimate thesis of that book. But how do you say that in a way that someone's going to listen? Well, mm. you pose as a self-help book and you quiz people about what's wrong with them <laughs> and you get <laughs> them to diagnose themselves. And suddenly they feel a need for your book and they read this book that they thought was a self-help book. Mm. And in fact, they actually find help outside of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I started my book with a very similar intention. So I'm, I'm imitating Walker Percy by saying, okay, how do we read? What do we think reading is? And especially because so many of us, we just, it's like fishes in water, right? Like we don't realize we're in the water. We don't realize how we read even, I mean, really basic stuff. Like we think of right reading as silent alone in our room, reading whatever we want for entertainment. It should please us. Some of these assumptions we shouldn't have. <laughs> They're mm. actually not best practices of reading. It's not what the reading life should look like. So I wanted to open that up and try to get us to rethink our assumptions. Mm. And and folks listening, this this reading quiz is actually really fun. Um, it, it, it's 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 sort of like the uh, the Sorting Hat in, in Harry Potter. Like it's a it's a fun it's a fun reading quiz. So like it it will be helpful. But it is also it is self diagnosis too. Like mm -hmm. it does help. Uh, I, th I think it it kind of opens us up as we go further into into the book, and it helps prime us for particular things that we really need to attend to uh, through through your project. So uh, so it's fun and 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 fruitful. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Yeah, maybe we can just turn to this this chapter that I think is really um, really interesting. Uh, it's the I think it's the second to last chapter in the book. Um, let me I have my digital my digital version here. Well, and I can just lay out the table of contents while you look. So yeah, please. That was another part of the invitational is I tried to frame the table of contents in the forms of questions that would be a way of being hospitable to people as readers. You know, what kind of reader are you, as you mentioned, is the first chapter, because I'm trying to get that 
that kind of fun quiz uh, vibe. But then later it's why read anything but the Bible? You know, do good books, make you a good person. And then the chapter we're going to talk about how, you know, why do you need four senses to read? So I, I'm very much trying to get people to, to rethink and to question things they maybe never questioned. And I think this chapter in particular, why do you need four senses to read, is one that's really going to open worlds for folks. And I think for those that, um, like myself, who are who are familiar with the kind of four senses of, of, of reading, um, it, it it will deepen and prod in some really neat ways. Mm-hmm. So um, somebody comes across this it, this chapter, you know, they're you know enjoying the book, and they get to why do you need four senses to read? Uh, like, uh, isn't reading just you know? maybe two, like seeing, you know, uh, seeing the words, hearing the words, thinking. So maybe three, like uh, what, 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 what are you getting at here? What are, what are these four senses? Like, can you give like a a little bit of a primer on what you're up to in this chapter? Sure. Well, I start by quoting Eugene Peterson, because I think he is probably the best, best model of what this looks like. And he talks about, yes, you have those two major senses that go on when it, when you're coming to reading and I'm going to differentiate because I'm going to use four senses and five senses. And they're actually two different things that I'm talking about. So starting first with what we think of when we, we think of senses, we think of the five senses, the, the seeing and the hearing, as you mentioned, um, but then also the taste and the touch and Peterson actually goes into that. He says first that we have to have our eyes and our ears blessed by God to be able to see and hear rightly what is in front of us. So he's actually already moving us from the physical senses of hearing and seeing to a more spiritual way of understanding the text. And that's going to get into how the tradition has used the phrase four senses, which moves it away from our five sense capabilities into we have the literal sense of the words the figurative or spiritual sense of the words. And then that spiritual sense is kind of an umbrella for two other senses, the moral or tropological and the anagogical or eschatological, which, you know, those are just really fun. If you ever like read Fancy Nancy with your kids, like I always use those words and I think Fancy Nancy words. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) That's what they are, right? And, And these are words that would have been very commonplace for readers for hundreds of years and we lost them and we lost our ability to, to move from our literal five senses of our eyes and our ears and our even our mouth, like tasting the words, to a place where we don't even know the spiritual capability of those five senses. Mm. And this is this is related also to how, obviously really closely to how we read scripture. And I think that's one of the other interesting things in the chapter is because it is... Uh, this could certainly be in, I mean, like much of your book, but especially this chapter could really easily be a, a chapter in a hermeneutics text. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is, it, it really is reading for the love of God because it's its how we read scripture, but then how we read any other text, but then how we read the text of the world, right? Even just how we think about um, creation, right? Which is in a way, you know, God's first book, right? That he, that he gives to us. So um, how... Yeah. How, how, how does someone kind of begin to step into this? Right. So like we're used to reading in the liter in the uh, in the literal sense. Mm-hmm. Right. These words mean these things. Mm-hmm. So are you um, are you suggesting that we stop doing that <laughs> and we kind of just make the, you know, look for the spiritual connection and really, yeah. you know, that's where we really need to focus? Um is that, is that what you're up to, Jessica? So there's so, there's so <laughs> much here, right? Like you're just, you're, you're egging me on to like step my foot in mud. Um, especially when it comes, these are really 
big theological and doctrinal and church tradition oriented questions that can scare people away from certain ways of reading the Bible. So I, I have to be very cautious and humble here. And if people have questions, these are things you should dialogue about and and make sure that you understand what it is that is being said rather than just assume certain things. Because we all come with some baggage when it comes to how to read the Bible, right? We have been brought in the same way that we ha- could have had baggage from how we were learning to read literature in high school, right? I wasn't good at literature or I had mm-hmm. to read it for a quiz. You come with certain baggage. It's the same with scripture. You come with certain baggage where you have to have a literal interpretation. And if you don't, that means you're not going to believe the son of God is real. You're not going to believe that this world was created. It evolved from a big bang. Like if you don't have a literal interpretation of scripture, aren't you going to go away from the inerrancy of scripture? Aren't you going to lose your footing? So instead, I recommend that with our hearts and our our minds open, that we consider a literal way that also can have a spiritual way and that we won't subtract one from the other and that we're not going to choose between the two things. And I think that's been the biggest problem is is feeling like they were enemies of one another and that you had to go one direction. Um, if you went the spiritual, you lost the literal. If you went the literal, I feel like sometimes you could lose the spiritual. And Augustine would say this, going back to the literal, he would say, you always go with the literal first. That's your first inclination is to understand the literal meaning of the text. But there are parts of the text that you can't understand literally because they don't make sense literally. For example, God is a lion is an example I use in the book. Mm-hmm. That cannot be a literal statement about who God is or else you're mm-hmm. going to be worshiping at the zoo. Like it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to say that um, and just assume a literal meaning is all we have. And in the same way, like, you know, Lord dash the, the babies on the rocks. Mm. It's not a literal imperative. Uh, we mm. can't take that as a literal imperative. So, or greet each other with a holy kiss. Like n- none of us are doing that. None of mm. us are taking this as a, so There has to be spiritual ways of reading scripture. And so Augustine would say, don't lose the literal, but let's also interpret those things spiritually that need to be interpreted spiritually. And let's see them more as a marriage of of two ways of reading, two senses. They wouldn't even say two levels. We're not going to divide it. We're going to say the two senses are there. Mm. That that's extremely helpful, and I think it it really goes back in a way to a comment you made earlier about Jesus teaching uh, that unless we um, unless we come to him as children, we can't inherit the kingdom. Uh, I was reading this in, in Matthew eighteen um, earlier, and I'm, I'm remind it reminds me that those those habits are are sort of in us, right? Where we're you know we're sort of wired to make these kind of connections, these associative connections, where you know we you know for example. Um, I think of, you know, talking with one of my kids about Psalm 1, right? Where, uh, you know, blessed is the one who walks not in the uh, the, the, the way of sinners uh, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord uh, mm-hmm. and meditates on it day and night. It's like a tree planted by streams of living water, bearing fruit in its season. And I remember talking with my son about this because I was going to preach it. And I was like, hey, what do I, and they were learning it at home. Uh, and I was like, oh, what, do, what should I say? He's like, it's like, man, this is easy. You know, uh, the water is like the Holy Spirit. The tree is like the Garden of Eden. Like he's making all of these, all of these connections and he doesn't know anything about this stuff, but he knows, you know, the basics of the biblical story. And so he's reading it in a spiritual way, right? Yeah. Yeah. That um, That is not violating the literal meaning, but actually is building upon it. Um, and, and yeah, I, th- I think that insight about um, reading and living as God's children 
that disposition. Uh, I think as we return to that, you know, with with spiritual maturity, mm-hmm. we, we these things become more integrated and and more natural for us. How, how how does this work though, Jessica? With with literature, like how mm-hmm. how how do we unite a literal reading and a spiritual reading when we're reading, you know, uh, you know, a great book or a worthwhile mm-hmm. novel? Like how how does it work on in in that realm? Yeah, and I differentiate. You know, John Wilson, who used to run the books and culture. You know, I recently gave him my my book, so we'll see what he thinks about it. But he he was very antsy because you don't want to confuse the two, right? The Bible, mm. liter- the Bible is not merely literature. Uh, literature doesn't have the authority of the Bible, so there are definitely lines that I draw at the very beginning of the book, right? So I'm not trying to conflate the two. What I am saying is that as people of the book. We were always learning from scriptures to then how do we read Homer's text, right? Or we were learning from Homer's text and finding something that helped us read the scriptures. And so kind of this this relationship between the two should almost, we should see literature as a company of church members, right? These are are stories that join our tradition. These are stories that help us unpack the scriptures themselves. So when we read scripture, we, uh, sorry, when we read literature, we have to see it as authored by fellow companions on the journey. And some of these companions are not believers. And so the spiritual depth of their, their work may not have been informed of by the Bible, but the Holy Spirit may have been at work there. And if we can glean something that's true, then the Spirit was at work and we can draw what's true. Or they may be antithetical to Christianity and they may have a complete lack. I mean, it might be a very nihilistic text and it's hard to read it spiritually and we have to be prepared for that. So I'm not saying that you can read absolutely everything with spiritual sense, but there's lots of things throughout the tradition that you can, especially Mm. those writers who were formed in the image by the Bible, right? They were formed by scripture. They knew scripture well. Um, George Herbert, Dante, Flannery O'Connor, right? Some of these writers who... They knew the word or even, you know, I mentioned you and I've talked about Zora Neale Hurston. She had rejected mm-hmm. the Christian tradition, but she had been formed by it. Mm-hmm. So you can still have spiritual sense in Moses, man in the mountain that she didn't intend and was actually yeah. taking that away from. So we can, we can see these things at play and we have to be very discerning for what spiritual sense is there. Um, does it, does it accord with what we know from scripture? And mm. if it does, then it's just helping us see God better. Mm. That's helpful. You know, it, as I was reading this chapter again, it made me think of a, two books that I read in high school that had that had a um, an impact on me beyond the sort of little reading. So one was uh, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, mm-hmm. and the other was A Clockwork Orange by um, Anthony, Anthony Burgess. Yeah. Um, and The Picture of Dorian Gray that more so than the other uh, is is a story of a young uh, a young man uh, beautiful young man um, and basically uh, he he delves deep into hedonism I mean Jessica you know this I'm explaining this for for listeners um, he delves yeah. deep into hedonism there's this sort of painting that's been made of him in a sort of um, inordinate kind mm-hmm. of desirous way and basically all of the sort of marks and weight of his his soul from his debauchery is transferred to the painting but not on on dorian himself um and it's a pretty like i I was i think i i think i had listened to it again maybe like two or three years ago um there's a lot of like teach it's a pretty didactic book Mm -hmm. like a pretty moralistic book but it had a big impact on me in high school because i i didn't just read it on the literal level like this is what happened but it made me think about um 
actually like what it means to be virtuous or what it means to kind of put off and put on in the language of, of Paul in Colossians 3. So I think I, th- I was thinking of that as sort of like, oh, okay, here's a novel that I read at, at a point when I didn't know these categories of reading, but mm-hmm. it did have this sort of spiritual depth depth to it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that was necessary. I mean, Oscar Wilde wasn't, you know, um, right. you know, a Christian in that particular way, but because of my um, context and the contours of my life and my heart and my mom and the church, it had that impact on me. So I think being um, being introduced to these ways of reading, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it can really uh, sanctify us and sanctify how we read texts that may not have been intended for those purposes. Yeah. Well, and even what you were just discussing, that you were able to take that text and ask, what does it mean for me, right? That's moving into the tropological mm-hmm. way. What ways can I imitate or live this book out in my life? And Mark Edmondson wrote a book called Why Read, where he basically argues it's that's how you know a book is good or not. Can you live that book? Mm. Do you live differently after having read that book, right? So there is, in a, and that's someone who's non-Christian, is there a tropological sense to this? Is there a moral sense? Does this book tell the truth about reality in such a way that makes you live differently in your reality? And I think that third sense is probably more open to people than maybe the, the second or fourth sense of a text, right? Where you have spiritual or, or eschatological, right? The, the end of all things, um, always in a sense, Christ. Where do we see Christ? Not every work's going to get there, but yeah. they can still do the moral reading, like what you're talking about. We can still have Oscar Wilde saying, this is how you sh- should live or not, right? Yeah. Um, even without going to the eschatological yeah. And that's where I feel like the the example of the ladder that you that you uh, draw from, you know, that's that's been uh, used throughout throughout tradition of and mm-hmm. sort of the rungs of, of reading. Right. The the literary, the historical, uh, the moral and then the, the beatific vision that, mm-hmm. that contemplate contemplation of, of God and his his goodness and his glory is really helpful um, in terms of kind of way, ways that we can that we can read. Um, are, are there any. Um, are, are there any kind of big hopes, prayer, like particular yeah. prayers um, that you have for this book as it gets ready to to enter into the world? And I know I, putting a book in the world is like putting a letter in a bottle and then like throwing it out to sea and <laughs> just kind of like, okay, cool. Like, you know, yeah. trusting you, Lord, on where this will go and what what it will do. What, what, what's kind of your, your heart's hope and prayer for uh, for this book as it enters the world? Yeah, you know, I mean, Flannery O'Connor said you write a book and then you let it go and God's going to do what he's going to do with it. And and I think that's true. I also think I have, I just have such a hope for this book, maybe more so. I mean, this will be my seventh book, I guess. And this, I have more hope for this book than I have other things that I've written because, and maybe because of that evergreen nature that you were talking about, because this book could open doors that would just free people from the prisons of themselves in mm. a way that's what I would hope is that people could break out of some of the traps of distraction from distraction by distraction, that they could break, you know, those are Elliot's words. They could break out of the technology that seems to suck them in. They could break out of the hedonism. They don't even know they're in that they constantly seek their own pleasure. And this book could be a door that maybe they never knew how to read or they didn't enjoy it or they didn't love it. They didn't know what it was for. And so I think I have more ambition for this book than maybe I should but um, that's what I would want is I'd really want to free people. <laughs> I want it to be a mm. very liberating process to read this and feel like there are doors that are opening to you that, that you never knew were there. Mm. Oh, that's so good. Um, well, 
can I pray for that briefly? Would that sure. be okay? The, yeah, book, the books that people pray? We're going to pray on the podcast. <laughs> if we can't pray on the podcast, then maybe there's other problems. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Uh, Lord, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for everyone that's listening. And we do pray that uh, this book would um, would free people and and draw them closer to you uh, in in the reading, but in our in our living. Lord, um, we just thank you for uh, for your goodness and how you've made us help us to employ these senses uh, in a way that, that draws us to you and frees us to to love you and to love others. Well, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so Amen. much. Jessica, it's been a pleasure as always. And yeah, just want to encourage folks uh, to, to, to pre-order. You still got a little bit of time. Grab this for yourself. Uh, this, this I think would be a really great book if you have someone in your life that you, you're like, man, I, I, I hope that this friend would read a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. or they've talked to me. They, they, I know they want to get into books. That's something they set as a goal for this year. Uh, this, this would be a great book to read personally, but to, uh, to share with the folks close to you. So, so do that and you, you will not be disappointed. Um, Thanks for listening in and uh, we'll catch y'all next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.